0: Hello and welcome to White Swan, the podcast that gives you the inside story on how leaders tackle crises. I'm Gavin McGaw and on this podcast we aim to furnish you with the learnings behind the headlines so that when the proverbial hits the fan you can keep things turning. On this episode of White Swan we're going to talk about gender bias and we'll be joined by Kate Miller of the England Wales Cricket Board and Professor Helen Sonson of York St John University. This episode has come about because I was hosting a webinar on gender bias for Playbook, the creative communications agency, and given it's an increasingly an area that executives and boards raise with us as a concern, we thought why not get the experts joining us for that webinar to also join us on White Swan. And I hope that you enjoy what they've got to say on this issue, because I find it both really, really interesting and hugely helpful for me. Both have huge experience and a real expertise in finding solutions to some of the issues that we're going to talk about. Before we hear from them, I'm joined by our crisis experts, Karen White of National in Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK. Welcome both.
1: Hi, Gav. Hi,
0: Gav. Hi, Gav. Now, this may seem like a strange topic to talk about on a crisis podcast, but it's increasingly one of the hot topics of concern for executives and boards when worrying about their organization's reputation. And what worries me, Karen, is that many of these executives, and let's face it, we're mostly talking about male executives, raise a concern about this area in private to the likes of you and me, and then shy away from doing anything about it as they're worried that it will make a mistake and end up being cancelled or something. Should they be worried, Karen?
1: Yeah, I think it's not just an issue of gender. It has a lot to do with how you show up as a leader and making sure that you're considering diverse voices. You know, In addition to crisis, I spend a lot of time working in the energy sector and natural resources development, which, as you know, is predominantly male. And I sit on a couple of energy sector boards, and I think it's very easy to fall into the habit of surrounding yourself with people who look and sound like you. It's very comfortable. And I think we need to challenge ourselves to really make sure that we are including those diverse perspectives. And many cases, as the only woman around the table, you know, maybe if I had been a little bit more timid, I might not have spoken up. But I recall, you know, an example, we were working through hiring the leader of an energy organization. And as we were screening applicants, you know, the people that were coming to the top of the pile, they were all men. And so I really had to advocate and push and challenge us to say, you know, we should be considering more women applicants and diverse applicants as a part of our hiring pool. And so I just think it's really important that we are challenging ourselves, that we are questioning. And by having those diverse perspectives around the table, I think companies are better for it.
0: That's really interesting. Karen, what about you, Gary? What have you seen in this area?
2: Well, I actually think uh, most businesses and organisations today do want to do more around diversity. Uh, And I think most, not all, but most leaders are convinced not only that it's the right thing to do, but that they will see commercial benefits and a competitive advantage if they do so. I think the challenge is underestimating the work required and so creating a gap between the expectation and the the delivery Uh, and this then being interpreted within the organisation and by external observers of the organisation as disinterest or failure. I think good intentions aren't going to unpick structural biases and many businesses don't want to concede that it's not all easy and they may need to make difficult decisions. And what i would say is that any serious leader in this field needs to know that this is much more than an hr issue it's a strategic business critical issue and as such it needs long-term planning a long-term approach kpis it needs clear ownership and accountability it needs a communication strategy internal and external and it needs a robust measurement system and i would argue ideally an outside perspective on progress And bringing in someone who can do exactly what Karen just described she did within the energy sector and tell an organisation, give a viewpoint that they may not get from within their own uh, bubble. That's great. And that also fits with that message
0: we've been pushing throughout this podcast, which is being proactive on these issues stops the crises happening. Prevention is always better than cure. So that's here from Kate and Helen. Each episode of White Swan features an in-depth conversation with senior figures from the world of business. So we get to learn about their crisis experiences and the lessons you need to hear. Today's a bit different though. We've just done a fantastic webinar for the Playbook Agency with Kate Miller and Helen Sonson on gender bias in communications. This has been inspired by International Women's Day and Women's History Month, uh, and the focus that's come from the need to raise awareness of gender bias. And we, within uh, the organization we're working with here, the Hanover Group, are communicators who recognize the need to shift perceptions and behaviors on this issue. We also know that a lot of the business leaders we work with see it as an area of risk, when actually it should be an area which is relatively simple to look at and deal with. And hopefully today, bringing Kate Miller, who's the Chief Diversity and Communications Officer of the ECB, the England Wheels Cricket Board, and Helen Sunston, the Professor of English Language and Linguistics at uh, York St. John University together, we can provide you with some clarity on this to help you do it better and to remove that gender bias. So let's start by getting Kate and Helen to tell us a little bit about themselves. Kate, why don't we start with you today?
3: Sure, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so i'm kate miller my role as you suggested is uh leading on diversity and communications which are not always the most common of bed fellows or bed people um as we're we're talking about gender and language uh, for the england and wales cricket board uh, i came through a uh, very uh, you know varied career in sports and i worked in sports betting for a while and i guess interestingly for me i didn't go to university which is quite different and unusual for people that are in executive roles and it was something I was probably a little bit ashamed about for a while until I realized that actually it's just a different route to where I've got to um so it's something that I kind I kind of talk about quite a lot now because I think it can be inspiring for other people who might have felt the same way as me further back in their careers as well
0: Do you think you had a bit of imposter syndrome then Keir, at times
3: Yeah I mean being honest the field I work in you know I'm I'm my my background is working class I didn't go to university I didn't go to public school it's a sort of perfect storm for a bit of imposter syndrome when you work in a relatively elite sport or what traditionally has been an elite sport like cricket. And it's probably exacerbated by people asking me where I went to school because that's important in cricket about which or it was it has been important in cricket, which school you went to um, or again where I went to university or where I grew up and actually... You know it's kind of with pride now how i talk about how my background is is diverse and different to some of the people that i i work with in cricket and what i will say is if i'm sorry helen to to dominate the airways for a moment but i didn't expect to get this job when i joined cricket i thought it would go to a white middle class man who um who, who went to a school with a name attached to it and so i was really surprised to get the role and um i've tried to keep that spirit uh, high in my work so far and that ability to challenge and sometimes say the difficult things so I am happily a difficult woman
4: who works in sport.
0: Now I know from experience Kate that it's a very good thing that you are because it has a, an amazing impact and Helen what about you what's your story?
4: It's interesting because I'm also from a very working class background I grew up in the little seaside town of Scarborough which is is very white working class so, and I, I also went to, a yeah, a, a comprehensive school, but was, you know, fortunate enough to be able to go to university in the days when we were still getting, getting student grants. So, yeah, I kind of learned the lesson really early on that access to education is really important for creating equality I would not have been able to go if I'd had to pay for it myself. So, yeah, I I kind of disappeared off to Birmingham City University when I was 18 and did my first degree in English language and literature. Absolutely loved it. And then I became a school teacher, secondary school English teacher for a couple of years after that. And I kind of missed I missed the academic side and I'd kind of started to notice as I was teaching that there was some you know a lot of gender inequality in education a lot of inequality around uh, sexuality and sexual diversity as well in education and I felt compelled to to kind of want want to try and do something about it so I went back to university and did did a PhD in linguistics and from that point onwards I yeah I I went into, into lecturing um, in higher education which is where I am now and one of the main areas that I teach and research in is uh, language, gender, and sexuality.
0: Fantastic. And I'm a recipient of a a grant as well to get the university, so I'm very thankful as well. The the thing I know Scarborough for is, weirdly, McCain chips. So we all like a bit of McCain chips. Anyway, right, let's get to our big issue here. Um, Helen, is it right to say that gender bias can cause crises in organisations, in your mind? Is it that serious an issue?
4: I think it is. I think it is, yeah. I don't think any any of us would hesitate, actually, to use the word crisis if if this debate that we're having now was about language and race or language and disability, yeah. for example. And those issues have been quite rightly described as crises in the past. And, yeah, many would argue are still, still in crisis, as we know. So I think an issue that we struggle with with gender at the moment is that gender stereotyping and other forms of harm that are caused by using particular forms of language in relation to gender are somehow seen as socially a little bit more palatable and acceptable in ways that racism and disability discriminations simply aren't. That's not to say that those forms of discrimination don't exist because sadly they do but i think with with particularly with gender stereotyping and seeing gender as not such an important issue is something that we're we're really struggling with at the moment so yeah i would definitely use the word crisis i think it lends the weight to the issue the weight that it actually deserves
0: so, so how on that? Do we sort of see a uh, do do? I mean, obviously, we've seen racial issues uh, and and other issues and homophobic issues come through and take the headlines. Do we think that gender bias is sort of the next one here, and it's why it's so well, it's the one that's the right thing to do to get it right. But also, if you're an organisation that wants to be more resilient, you have to get it right.
4: Yeah i i i hope so i hope that gender is is the next dimension of equality and diversity to start receiving uh, more attention it's kind of interesting because awareness of sexism and misogyny and sexist language has actually already been around for quite a long time but progress in relation to gender has actually been a lot slower than it has been for those other dimensions of equality and diversity. And I think it's something that is perhaps just, just more difficult to challenge. I don't know if it's because women are, as a minority group, are actually, you know, 51% of the population. And therefore, it's simply more difficult to challenge things on that really massive structural level, or whether the the kind of the thinking about gender is, is just so much more deeply ingrained. And has so much more of a, a, a history, a history behind it. But certainly I think it it's it's certainly an issue that has has been slower to address. And there's been more resistance to it, I think, as well.
0: Yeah, I think I think your latter point's probably very true, Helen. You know, and I think it, when you you read books from the past or even watch movies from the past, not only obviously there's other issues which shine out as being things of the past or should be in the past but particularly gender bias. Kate what about you I mean obviously in the worlds you work in we've seen lots of issues uh, racial issues and others play out is gender bias seen as something that just needs to be done to tick a box or is it seen as a potential crisis if you don't get it right or is it seen as the right thing to do?
3: I mean I'd say that we are in the middle of a gender crisis still to to Helen's point like it's absolutely there and if you put the lens of race and ethnicity or or ability disability over it it absolutely would be called out we regularly still see pejorative language used towards women you know when we talk about institutions the very fabric of organizations being an ism racist sexist I, I still think the very fabric of most most organizations and industries in in the UK now are fundamentally institutionally sexist the the makeup, the laws, the regulation, the governance, the fairness around gender equality just isn't really there still. So, I, I you know, the argument is well, you would say that you're a woman, but you know, it, I don't think it's to do with me working in a in a in a still male-dominated industry either. I think it's everywhere. And to, to Helen's point, I think it's much harder to call out. I don't know why. I don't know how it begins to move. I do know from where I sit that I do think that sport is a really big mover in that space and, and and can hold a mirror up to society. I think my sport at the moment maybe is not quite where it needs to be in in authentically holding that mirror. But I, I'm really interested to see, you know, I think race and ethnicity and racism, I think is, is moving and people are accepting that it's a massive issue, quite rightly. But are people really genuinely accepting that sexism and misogyny is a crisis? I'm not sure they are.
0: It's really interesting. And maybe I'll ask you both this but come to you first, Kate. What what are the obvious things though that can start to change that? Or is it is it more fundamental in saying there's something obvious? It's it's a wider cultural challenge?
3: Um, I think it's people recognizing that there's a problem as a starting point and not necessarily you know we, we talked before about intersectionality and understanding the importance of intersectionality in this debate as well. I think it's men coming to the party and understanding that they're part of change. I think it's women, and we see examples of it, women who, you know, whose careers progress and they find themselves fortunately sitting at top, or through hard work, sitting at top tables, continuing that momentum for other women that come beh- you know, behind them. I see great examples of it every day. I came back from maternity leave. My daughter was born in November, 2020. I came back from maternity leave and male leaders within the business came to me and said what can we do we've got women coming back into the business how do we lead them in a great way when they come back from maternity leave I think it's you know we see great examples happening I see great examples happening everywhere I just want more people to accept that there is still an inherent problem and we've all got a part to play in
4: fixing it
0: is uh, acceptance a big part of this Helen
4: I think it is. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with everything that Kate's just said, acceptance and awareness and um, a willingness to to take take responsibility and and realise that actually, um, as Kate was saying, it's it's an issue for, for all of us, you know, just as addressing racism is an issue for everybody just as addressing disability discrimination is an issue for for everybody that the the same goes for sexism and misogyny as well and obviously from from just from my own perspective i argue that one of the changes we can make is is just being accepting and being aware of the instrumental role that paying attention to language can really play in that and that language isn't isn't just trivial it's it's not just a little thing it's it's kind of a a big part of who we are and, and what we do.
0: I think that's fundamentally important, isn't it? And in the webinar, Helen, you spoke very elegantly about the issue with some media coverage and some general writing, uh, which really creates a gap between men and women. Do you want to just outline some of that for our listeners here on the White Swan podcast?
4: Um, yeah, there's, there's, you know, quite, quite a lot of research has kind of pointed out that Often in media reporting, men and women are presented in in sometimes quite oppositional, quite adversarial terms. We've all come across headlines that are, you know, the battle of the sexes, the gender wars, etc. And I really don't think that's helpful. Um, doesn't kind of reflect my reality certainly, and I'm sure everyone's as well. So yeah, I think certainly there's a role that for. for for language being used in a more more caring way that creates a sense of collectivity and unity. And yeah, when gender is presented in that really binary way, um, we were were discussing in the webinar about how how women tend to get quite underrepresented and often quite misrepresented, particularly in things like sports reporting as well, where uh, women just get, get a lot less airtime. Than men generally in the same sports. Um, There's a lot of gender marking that goes on where women's tennis, women's cricket, women's football um, is marked in ways that the men's equivalent games are not. And just right down to some of the adjectives and the verbs that are used in reporting, it's really interesting and important to pay attention to those as well. Really big study done by Cambridge University in 2016. Wrote extensively about this, and they gave examples like, you know, the verb "clinch" and "claim." Women tend to clinch their wins, their titles in sports, whereas men men claim them as their right, as their right.
0: It's fascinating, isn't very worrying. We also discussed how a lot of reporting, particularly with uh, women uh, sports stars or women celebrities, will have a edge. Uh, and whether they're a mum or a mother of one, you know, uh, all built in, which just seems extraordinary in this day and age. And Kate, for you, you've seen over your career, you've seen big changes in the world of sports, which have to be welcomed, I guess. But I guess also frustration is not moving faster at the same time.
3: Yeah, I'm quite impatient anyway, to be honest with you. So I, I love, I love things to be fixed, fixed tomorrow, but. I mean we do we do need to celebrate the progress that has been made and there are good things you know i winced last year when batter versus batsman was rolled out anticipating a, an, an enormous backlash and actually i was quite pleased by there obviously was some backlash because it's an interested an interesting debate i guess but but actually it was adopted really quickly the broadcasters got involved you know we we've talked about the sort of behemoths of sky and bbc champion changes like this and i think that's really important to the debate but, you know, for me, I think it's about, and Helen, Helen spoke about it previously, often these things challenge people's relevance and, and they feel as if language is sort of sacrosanct and by changing it, you somehow challenge their relevance. You know, this was how I was taught it. This is how it was when I was a boy. And actually somehow by changing that, you're challenging their relevance and... And I think I actually find that quite fun to do that. Like I, you know, I'm very lucky that my, you know, my dad's in his 70s. Um, occasionally, he spins out a real corker, and I'm a bit like, "No, Dad, we don't say that anymore." And he's like, "Oh, okay, fine, no problem." And you know, for me, that's you know, being an older generation, but being open to the fact that society is changing, and you can either be part of that change and remain relevant, and actually, or stay completely ground in the 1940s, 50s, or 60s and lose your relevance. I actually find it quite ironic that the debates looked at from the other way and you know i i I've got a huge amount of pride in my dad who pushed me from a very young age and didn't didn't see certainly didn't see my sex in the debate at all he he championed me to play all different levels of sport and all whether it was a, a you know a monastical sport or not um and pushed me very hard in my career to not to not worry about being a girl or being a woman so um I think that's, I've gone off track a bit, sorry, but my point was basically, but the, the irony that you need to keep up with the times and change your language in order to stay relevant, I actually think is something that people need to consider.
0: It's, it's again, it's fascinating, isn't it, to see how far we're moving, but that big challenge is still needed, the check and challenge aspect that you just, just outlined. Um, Helen, from business leader's perspective, what should they be doing what check system should they have in their brain when it comes to gender bias and communications? You know, is this complicated? Do they need to have a whole new system, bring in new advisors? What is it they should do? I mean,
4: it's not complicated. It's actually quite simple. And there's nothing kind of scary about it either. You you know, I say to my students, I would say to everyone listening as well that, you know, if if you're writing, for example, about women and their achievements ask yourself would you use that same language to write about men in an equivalent scenario or in an, an equivalent position um, and if the answer is no then that leads on to the question well well why and often that's a really good strategy for raising your, your own levels of awareness and it's something something that I you know I still do You know, even now, having been actively involved in this sort of research for 20 years, you know, you can you can never get rid of unconscious bias completely, but you can you can learn how to become more aware of it. So, yeah, it's it's simple, simple, really. Just think about parity uh, when it comes to communication. Would you do this for X if you're doing it for Y? And if the answer's no, that's your first clue that that you maybe need to, to be looking at that language a little bit more carefully. It's a
0: great rule, isn't it, Kate?
4: One thing I
3: um, I just find this so fascinating. There's also the flip side of the debate as well in that the the language positioning that, that we create for men versus women. You know, women, words like diminutive, petite and... Those sort of quite, you know, those very very feminine words that describe women as being weaker and positioning them as weaker and talking about them being mothers or wives, et cetera. There's the flip side of that as well. You know, we still know that the biggest killer of men aged under 40 is suicide, actually. And by positioning them as these sort of leviathans of strength and unchallengeable physical prowess, what does that do? And how much does that erode men's mental health? It's not just about positioning women badly and incorrectly. It's also the... Um, the mantle that we place men upon as being powerful and not weak and not not having the ability to to be vulnerable, I think cool. it's both sides of the debate that are really impacted in this. Everyone could benefit from that language changing, not just women.
4: Absolutely, I I absolutely agree, and I yeah I also find that sort of language around. Constructing men as as heroes, superheroes, really, really difficult. You know, as, you know, I have a son and I kind of worry about the potential impact of him repeatedly hearing that sort of language and and feeling that he can't be anything else. And, you know, of course, we try and try and tell him as much as we can that, you know, it's fine to not go along with that, but it's really difficult when it is so pervasive um, across the media. So, yeah, I would agree that, that, that looking at the language around men and about men is, is equally important to look at as well.
0: And this goes all the way back to, you know, you'll know this, Helen, from your background, but to education. Because, you know, yes. I've got daughters in a girls' school and a boy, OK, in a, um, a mixed school. But the language in the boys' school is very, very different. And the thing they celebrate is sporting achievement very different at the girls school where they celebrate everything across the board and it's just really interesting to that so if he's not interested in sport and he's not a you know a big achiever in sport if that's the case you've got nowhere to go you're just you're left and it's fascinating how we disenfranchise parts of society whether whether it's a whole gender or whether it's just parts of other genders it's just it's just mad and there's no it makes no sense and i guess our what we're saying here to business leaders is this is not complicated but at present, your language and your communications are probably disenfranchising members of your staff, some of your customers, some of your stakeholders on a wider basis. And it's mad.
3: Even when you look at the language that um, that you use and in things like job adverts, that's really critical as well. And this is way beyond my field and much, much more in Helen's, Helen's wheelhouse. But often I've looked through job adverts that we've put up where they are completely biased towards attracting male candidates, even at a really high level. And, you know, um, my role is communications and diversity, and actually looking at it through that, that lens of how you can tailor and shape something um, to, to really appeal to male candidates over over female candidates. I think is something that we all need to be cognizant over. And there's technology out there that you can use that help you um, help you review all of those things. But you know, Helen's point and what we've been talking about positioning men as be you know being a, a strong leader, for example, and words like that bold, charismatic. Um, all those kind of words, they're, they're very male. And I think even being aware of that and how it can be off-putting, you might you might lose female applicants because of that. And then worst of all, you might flip the system to ensure that you're only really getting men through, through the door. Um, one final point is this really impacts the bottom line as well. We know that if you've got Fortune 500 companies, for example, with a proper gender balance at the executive table, you're 8% more profitable. So this doesn't just matter from a a culture and values perspective. This makes a difference to your profits. Get it right. You will have more balanced organisations. Your customers will be happy. You'll be more creative and you'll make more money. It does make a difference.
0: It's really important that we reinforce that, particularly to the business leaders listening, because there's that example from Hasbro where the former CEO, Brian Goldner, talked about how they pivoted with, uh, in terms of gender neutrality to try and position some of the brands. And one of the biggest pieces of insights for him as a business leader was when it turned out 30% of My Little Pony, the TV show's global TV audience was Boyd's, which surprised everyone. And when they changed and pivoted to be more gender neutral, to quote him, we eliminated the old delineation of gender. And as a result stocks hit an all-time high because of the work they did on inclusivity more broadly uh, and just big impacts across the board in a positive sense for the business. So it's not only the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. And Helen, you must see that all the time.
4: Definitely, definitely. And I think that's only increasing as time goes on, and I, th- I think for, for business leaders, there's, um, you know, one thing to be really aware of, as well as that that sort of, bottom, you know, the being good for the bottom line is not wanting to seem out of touch and behind the times, really, particularly amongst younger generations who are much more aware of equality, diversity and inclusion issues more broadly now. So I think failing to address gender bias in any sort of communication whether it's intended or not can actually give the impression of the organisation being outdated being careless being thoughtless and be a little bit short-sighted when it comes to diversity and you know I, I work with young people by teaching them at universities all the time and this is just isn't going to wash with them anymore I'm afraid
0: yeah they're going to hold you to a kind I think particularly we talked in the webinar about the challenge in hiring staff these days and good talents hard to find and hard to keep uh, and you've got to get these things right because they will not accept it you know that's a fantastic cause related campaign which is happening just organically out there and um, but it does feel that this issue is sort of continuing to get more and more divisive in society is that something you too feel Kate? have you seen it become more divisive
3: it's interesting. As I said, I expected batter versus batsman to be uh, to create more of a furore than it really did, and it maybe it's exclusively in certain titles now or certain audience groups that we see it. Maybe people are a bit divisive out after Brexit and you know and and all the things that followed and Tories and the Red Wall falling and all the rest of it. Um, I think it is still divisive. Is it as divisive as it once was? Probably not. And I think people like to weigh in and be provocative in that space to make themselves feel relevant, really. You see people weighing in on Twitter, don't you? And it's just, you know, it's not, uh, uh, you know, I find it all a bit tiring now, really. It's, it's where the world needs to go. You, you know, get on or ship out.
0: Or well, have we seen it become more divisive in your perspective, Helen? I mean, has online made it worse? The online chatter on these things?
4: Yeah, I, th- I think, as, as Kate has, has just said, yeah, I think there's um, a lot more going on on social media that's, that's quite, quite deliberately hostile to, to try to get a reaction. And at the same time, there's quite a lot of calling out of that behaviour on social media now. So I know very, various researchers have, re- have referred to social media as providing spaces that can provide these pockets of disruption. Uh, where different kinds of equal- inequality sorry, uh, can actually be really, really effectively challenged when it's more difficult to do that in more public fora that not everybody has access to. Everybody's got access to social media, so anybody can join in uh, with these debates. So it's difficult to know if the divisiveness is... Yeah, it's difficult to get a proper sense of the extent to which there is division. I, I agree with Kate. I think it is still a divisive topic, Probably not as much as it used to be, but there's there's all. I think particularly when it comes to gender, there there are we're going to be stuck with some some resistance to change for a while.
0: Yeah, in our in the webinar, we had a question from a uh, a business leader who a, a gentleman business leader, and he asked whether he he was sort of saying he wants to be an advocate often is worried about patronising uh, women with his comments. And this comes back to your So I think, a fear from some people about being cancelled just for misspeaking. And that's not what this is about, is it, Helen?
4: Not at all, no. Um, you know, we, the last thing that any of us want is to actually close down debate. We don't want people to become too fearful um, of speaking about these issues. Um, it's okay to say, you know, I want to get involved in this, I want to to, to do something to change, but I'm worried about sounding patronising. And just by saying that means you're not going to be. You know, again, sort of being upfront about your own vulnerability, your own feelings of vulnerability actually can, is really productive. You know, we, we talk a lot in linguistics about, about language and vulnerability and how actually it can be a really powerful Um, productive thing because it just opens up debate it makes it feel feel safe Um, and and that's what we want really we don't want the debate to stop because people become too fearful of talking
0: I mean uh, Kate you mentioned how good your CEO Tom Harrison was on this but is there within sport in general do you think there's some people are slightly worried about this and so they're scared of even dealing with the issue
3: Yeah, there's a great phrase that I actually read um, after George Floyd's murder and during when Black Lives Matter was really coming more to the fore, which was, it's okay to turn up to the debate imperfectly. It's the resistance to change that's the problem. And I always, I think that's such a good thing to hold at your front of mind because people will forgive you for being, people can forgive you for not knowing and people can forgive you for not understanding, but people don't forgive you for not wanting to um, be part of change. So I think that I always try and hold that at the front of my mind and I try and share that with my teams as well. I mean, you never want to look to um people from from various protected characteristics to, to educate you, but I always think it's good to be curious and ask questions. And like a good example, whilst it's not necessarily about gender, is um Ramadan is coming up, and I have Muslim colleagues in the office here who will be fasting, as you will probably know, part of Ramadan. Most um most Muslims, not all, choose to fast from sunrise to sunset. And I was very unsure whether like drinking or eating in front of people that were fasting was, was kind of a dis- disrespectful thing. And so I sort of asked and actually the answer back was it's it's quite subjective. You know, that abstinence is actually the bit that's key during fasting, during Ramadan and to practice abstinence with people that are eating and drinking, et cetera, is sort of is sort of part of it. But the, the reality is, is it's different for everybody. And the, the point is being respectful. Actually, if you're in a room with people and it's like, I'm going to have drinks, anyone is everyone all right with that? You know, being sensitive that people are thirsty or hungry is a great place to be. But just talking about it and being open to understanding people's experiences is at the heart of all of this.
4: You know, that's another reason why having diversity within organisations is so beneficial because it just makes those conversations so much easier to happen and so much more every day as well. And we know that those conversations happen in diverse organisations and they don't in non-diverse organisations so yeah I, I would also say to business leaders look, look at your diversity profiles they're so important for so many reasons.
3: We we had something recently you know, same group of colleagues came to us and said look we, you know we, we recognise where cricket's at at the moment in terms of the issue, issues and debates around race and ethnicity we'd love to hold an iftar which everyone or may or may not know is the breaking of fast at the at, um, during Ramadan We'd like to hold an iftar so and they asked us some budget uh, and they're hosting a, an iftar in the long room here at lords and they're inviting media and lots of colleagues from across the business are going and some will be fasting um, alongside to experience what it's like but it's a, effectively a tool to educate people on the meaning of ramadan and what it means to muslim communities and to helen's point you know there's the I think that's the, the joy of having a diverse organisation as well, is that people want to educate and share their experiences. And if you create a safe place, I'm running out of breath because I really find this very inspiring, but if you create a great space, people will um, will want to share those experiences. They'll want to be part of this kind of great virtuous circle of experience and education. So, uh, I, you know, we're, we're obviously in... in 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 sync here and we're obviously here for for that reason but it's so powerful to be diverse it's so good to be brave and try and branch out and make your organization look different
0: that's fantastic what a great place to finish this podcast uh, Kate thank you so what I'm hearing if you don't mind me summing up is if you want to make your organization more resilient uh, for the future it makes sense not only to try and change the status quo, but to champion it, to drive it, as you said, Kate, and you do that by injecting the diversity Helen talked about into the organisation, by making sure you are checking and challenging elements which are not right, and the key rule, as Helen said, is if you're not doing it for one gender, why would you do it for the other? It's that parity is so important. And this is not rocket science. Every leader can do this. I'd just like to thank you both. What have you got coming up next? Uh, Helen, what have you got coming up next?
4: Uh, back to teaching. I'm also writing, writing a book with some colleagues at the moment on language and social justice, where we're, we're going to be writing about these issues and other dimensions of equality, diversity and inclusion in relation to language.
0: Fantastic. Well, we look forward to seeing that come out, Helen. Thank you. And what about you, Kate? What's next for you?
3: Uh, we will continue our drive to uh, inspire a new generation to say that cricket is a game for them, which is our, our, our five-year strategy. Uh, I would just leave with an ask of everyone that if you are thinking about coming to sport this summer, please go and watch some women's sport. Help us grow the game, whether that... I don't care which sport it is. It'd be great if it was cricket. But come along, watch women's sport. Open up your mind, your eyes, your wallets, Uh, And vote with your feet, please, and help uh, women's sport progress uh, by playing, following or attending.
0: There we go. That's some nice homework for everyone to uh, play a role in. And we'll leave it there. But thank you both for a brilliant chat. And I think you've given some fantastic advice there to uh, business leaders who listen to this podcast. And uh, I wish you all the best for the future.
4: Thanks. Thank you.
0: I hope you find that as valuable as I did. What really struck me was the simplicity of how we should be dealing with this issue. It really is not rocket science. Gary, did their advice work
2: for you? And Do you think leaders that you work with would find it useful? Very much so. Um, and I think the main thing for leaders to take away from my perspective is that language matters uh, and the words that you use will have an impact Uh, that's a tremendous opportunity for communicators, but it is also a responsibility. We talked earlier briefly about fear of cancellation, but really a leader shouldn't be acting based on a fear of consequence. They should act based on taking responsibility and driving forward a vision for the organization that they lead. And diversity and gender equality is no different to any other aspect of business where that would be the expectation. The other thing I think leaders should consider is that language is just one aspect of culture and the principle of what makes an inclusive culture is something that really people should be thinking about more often certainly in the uk where most of us are sitting culture is around going to the pub um not only as an example is that not necessarily inclusive to everyone but it's a missed opportunity uh, to create a cultural program within your organization that is not just about letting off steam but is more about making your workplace a place that people want to come to because again that's going to drive retention and competitive advantage in a market in which recruitment is challenging
0: so turning it into an advantage i like that what about you karen is it simple
1: Yeah, I really like that check and challenge approach and the advice that was given in order to address unconscious bias. You know, it's so important and critical to us as communicators and leaders in organizations. And I really like the guidance that Helen gave. It was quite simple, that that notion of if you're writing about women and their achievements, you know, ask yourself, would you use that same information to describe men? I love that notion, you know, really that idea of being self-aware of your own biases. I mean, the fact is we all have them. And so being mindful of that, you know, we're never really going to get rid of unconscious biases, but taking time to stop and think about the language that we're using and making sure that we're not reinforcing those gender stereotypes. It's such an important step to equity and inclusion, You know, in in writing for clients, I've worked with clients working in social justice conversations or involving equity, diversity, inclusion. I always try to ask for extra feedback from representative groups just to make sure that I'm not missing anything and that I'm like addressing any of my own um, biases that I may not be conscious of. So I thought it was simple advice and it's simple to do. And, you know, really, we should all be practicing that in our communications.
0: Well, that's a very important note to end on. Thank you, Karen. And what fascinated me about our conversation with Kate and Helen on gender bias is, as you say, Karen, this is not complicated. In fact, leaders often create the complications themselves, making something simple needlessly complicated. This is one of those rare occasions where the easy path is the same as the right path. Let's leave it there then. Until next time, hope you enjoyed that. And thank you for listening to White Swan, the crisis podcast. Stay safe.
3: White Swan is brought to you by Hanover Communications and its global crisis network. To find out more, please visit hanovercoms.com.
1: That's Hanover, H-A-N-O-V-E-R, comms c-o-m-m-s dot com